Every now and then, I meet someone who's changing the world for the better by their sheer will alone. Whether they're authors, activists, or adventurous, these people are blazing a path with their deep enthusiasm and allowing the world to follow. Their passion is strong, and my passion is to tell their stories. I am Brian Platt, and this is Passion Project. Hey, what's going on, everyone? So in this episode of the podcast, I speak with author and naturalist Doug Peacock. We talk about his most recent book, Was It Worth It?, where he chronicles his life in conservation, particularly grizzly conservation. And in the podcast, we talk about genetic isolation that grizzlies are dealing with. We talk about populations of grizzlies. We talk about why states shouldn't manage their grizzly populations or a lot of endangered species populations. Montana in particular, he mentions, as being his home state and having a really difficult time um, managing some wildlife populations. We chat about his conflicting and, well, his disdain for the NRA and his not-so-conflicted feelings about trophy hunting. We talk about his need for solitude and walking and how walking and walking alone is his meditation. We talk about some close encounters with grizzlies that he had with him and when he was with his daughter. We talk about his experience as a Green Beret and how that formed some of his conservation beliefs and his thoughts and his morals. And finally, we talk about something I didn't know before I read the book, but the fact that he was the inspiration for Edward Abbey's George Washington Hey Duke character in the Monkey Wrench Gang. So for those of you who are familiar, that's a pretty cool thing to be able to say. Um, he's got a significant amount of chapters where he talks about Edward Abbey itself, or himself. But anyways, the book is very, very good. It is another one by Patagonia Publishing, which if you're familiar with them at all, have incredible books by really, really fascinating characters and authors with amazing photography and artwork in it. So as always, I hope you enjoy this podcast. And please like, rate, review, subscribe. All those things help so much. I hope you enjoy. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Doug. This is, uh, this is going to be really exciting. Oh, you're welcome, Brian. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Well, me too. I, uh, I finished your book a while ago. Was It Worth It is the title of the book. It's part of the Patagonia series. It's incredibly written. It's about uh, some segments of your life, some stories that you had, uh, kind of talking through some uh, really integral parts of your life, but very, very incredible. Um, I, I kind of want to talk from the very beginning. How did you get involved in conservation? Conservation seemed to be a through line for you. How did you initially get involved in it? And what specifically well, got I, you in I it? Was, I was green-lighted from the beginning because of my parents, especially my dad. We lived in the lower peninsula of Michigan, up in the northern forest, mostly. He was a Boy Scout organizer. So everywhere I went as a little boy, um, you know, it was in the woods, in the lakes, and paddling canoes, and looking for turtles, and fishing for trout, and hunting for mushrooms, and, uh, you know, and looking at birds, and, and, and seeing a black bear. Just uh, wonderful outdoor adventures, and uh, you know that uh, that prepared me for a life. It turns out to be a life in the wild, and you know I had plenty. Uh, you know I had I had a good preparation for that. Um, how about if I just read a couple pages at the very beginning of the book? Because it, it's kind of, you know, it, it, it talks about what prepared me for a life in the wild, because that's really what it ended up being. And, of course, if you have a life in the wild and you value that experience, you're going to do everything you can to protect wilderness. And I, I did. So this is just the beginning of the book. I call it a winter count. I logged my life by winter counts in the fashion of the Plains tribes who painted significant events on the inner sides of a bison hide. This might be a battle, treaty, an encounter with a dangerous creature, finding a spirit animal, or possibly a winter so cold the cottonwood trees split apart. Though the indigenous peoples tended to mark each year, not every year of my life was worthy of a winter count. Some counts could come bundled in decades, with only the rivulets of spring runoff and the emergence of bears to mark 
the in-between times. So it was with me. I started a new count in 1968. There was my life before the war, the Vietnam War, where I was a Green Beret medic. Uh, there was my life before the war that prepared me for a life in the wilderness, a good life full of swamps, rivers, woods, deserts, and mountains. From 1965 to 1968, I worked as a Special Forces medic who attended too much collateral damage. That cowardly phrase they applied to the pile of small, dismembered bodies after a botched air attack. After March 1968, I applied the, the anger doing that to the defense of wild things, dimly realizing that the fate of the earth and her inhabitants depended on uncompromising protection of the wilderness homeland and wild creatures. My war experiences, good and bad, prepared me for the fight. It was a gift. I learned to love grizzly bears. I also fell in love with the Lower Sonoran Desert, a romance started in the early 60s, but broken by the separation of war. Space and endless clean vistas and broken by the forests I so cherished up north. By late 1968, I had two opposing mistresses, grizzly bears in the northern Rockies and the desert southwest. When the bears hibernated, I hightailed it south. I love that. And that is a great intro to the book. And you, you address this a little bit, but how do you think that, um, you know, your time serving, by the way, thank you for your service. Um, how do you think your time serving as a Green Beret influenced everything from your ability to track grizzlies to, you know, your appreciation of the wild? It seemed to have a big influence on you and well, your love of nature. Yeah, you, did, you didn't exactly go to Vietnam to take nature hikes, you know. Right. And, uh, um, so that wasn't the primary thing on your mind, but I was indeed in the central highlands. I worked with my indigenous troops were mountain yards, you know, tribesmen, um, and some Vietnamese uh, uh, people too. But, uh, you know, we went up into the jungle and uh, the jungle is full of life, birds and monkeys and uh, deer of several different species. And hunting those deers was a Malaysian tiger. And I saw tiger tracks, oh, seven or eight times in the highlands of Vietnam. You know, they're nocturnal animals. So, you know, it was, uh, on the other hand, I got shot at thousands of times. So, you know, you, you, didn't, you didn't keep your nose uh, to the ground all the time. And, uh, but, but that's, that's how it was. You know, I was open to the country, which was beautiful, the wildlife, and I, and I love the people. Yeah, uh, I spent a little time in Thailand when I was teaching, and it is, it's a wild place, great people. Mm -hmm. um, definitely some work, at least now, some work to be done in conservation. So uh, how did you get involved with, you touched upon a little bit, and you definitely talk about it in the book, but I mean, you're huge in grizzly bear conservation. You're a huge uh, resource for grizzly bears and for bears in general. How did you get involved in grizzly conservation? Well, that started, that started after I came back from the war in 1968. And I was, uh, you know, like a lot of other vets, I was really out of sorts. I didn't like being around people, even my own family. And so I went to one place that I was comfortable, which is the wilderness. Um, you know, to hang out and, and uh, where I was comfortable and just hoping to mend my wounds. and. So as the snows melted, I went up the Rocky Mountains, uh, and I ended up in the Wind River uh, Range in Wyoming during the, uh, you know, during the early summer of 1968. And I came down uh, with a malaria attack. So um, malaria, I've had a lot of malaria, so I know how the attacks unfold. And they, they with me, they, 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 they take a day or two to unfold. And so I know it was coming, and so I got the hell out of the Wind Rivers. The eastern Wind Rivers are full of glaciers. It's really a cold, wet ecosystem, a niche way up high, you know, up to 13,000 feet. And, uh, you know, so I went into Yellowstone, which was uh, the, where the weather was relatively mild, and the terrain, the topography, comparably speaking at least, was flat, you know, compared to the Wind Rivers with glaciers and rugged peaks everywhere. But I was coming down with this uh, 
malaria attack. And uh, I knew what happened. I'd spike a high fever and go out of my head. So, you know, I uh, I got into Yellowstone as as my temperature is rising and went into the back country where there are a bunch of hot springs and a hot creek. And, um, you know, I went back and put up a tent and uh, got ready for this malaria paroxysm, <clears throat> as they're called, you know, you're, you spike a fever. I remember the last time I recorded my fever was over 105. So, you know, you, I just went out of my head. I don't know how long I was in there, three days, three hours. Um, but when I woke up, um, you know, when I woke up, my sleeping bag was soaked with sweat and uh, there were grizzly tracks all, all, you know, not right next to my tent, but in the area of my tent. I went out and found a lot of tracks and uh, I wasn't sure <clears throat> because I went out of my head and a hallucinatory paroxysm of malaria. I wasn't sure if these are real bears or I just dreamed them, but they were indeed <laughs> real. And so uh, later that day, I'm soaking in a hot creek, you know, where the water starts out boiling and ends up tepid, you know, just a little tiny creek. And uh, I'm sitting in a creek with hot water tumbling over, you know, my, my neck, my back, kind of, you know, the notion that soaking in hot waters you know, can mend wounds and heal souls. And, you know, I went in there for this, that solace. And uh, I looked out off to my side, and there was a mother grizzly bear and two yearling cubs coming across this meadow. And she, she was 200 feet away or so. Or, um, but I didn't know anything about bear, grizzly bears, you know, uh, really. And uh, even though I'd spent a summer in Alaska looking for fossils, um, <clears throat> And uh, so I decided I was going to climb a tree, and I kind of looked around, and uh, there was a tree right next to the bank of this uh, little creek. So I uh, I waited till the bears were kind of eating grass and looking in another direction, and I stood up fast and made a move for the tree. And when I stood up, the hot water effect caused me to black out. And uh, so... I blacked out, but I was still terrified, and I hit the tree with my forehead and cut a huge gash in my forehead, and blood's running down my face. But I was so terrified that I climbed up this little tiny lodgepole pine tree. And when I got to the top, I discovered it wasn't much bigger than a Christmas tree, you know? It was really silly, standing up there bleeding. It's October, and the wind is blowing, and I'm blue and freezing after 30 minutes of those bears coming around sometimes 20 feet from me, but never looking at me. And they knew I was there, of course. And uh, anyway, uh, I just sat up there like some kind of species of silly sparrow, uh, blue and bleeding and naked as a newt. You know, so those, bear, those bears got my attention. That was the beginning. <clears throat> wow. What a story. I don't think there's anyone who I've ever spoken with who's, who has malaria, onset of malaria, goes out to go camping, tries to break it in hot water, uh, and then that whole experience with bears, that is wild. And it sounds like it, it's kind of grown from there. I know you're the founder of the, uh, the nonprofit Save the Yellowstone Grizzly. Um, True, truly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. how, how has, I'm curious, always curious about population trends. How have they changed um, since the 1970s or since you started yeah, studying okay. them? Well, since I started... At the exact time, um, the Yellowstone uh, grizzly bears had been feeding on human garbage for 80 years. That's just what they did. And so the grizzly bears in Yellowstone were conditioned to eating garbage. Uh, in the late 60s, the same time when I came back from Vietnam, the park decided they wanted to, to wean the bears cold turkey off the garbage in the hopes that they, you know, readapt to wild foods. There were a couple biologists, famous biologists, the Craighead brothers, who were studying bears in the park, and they they recommended not doing it so fast because, you know, the bears were, were just so used to garbage, they'd find it someplace else. And indeed, that's what happened. The grizzly bears of Yellowstone in the late 60s went into town sites, little towns around Yellowstone Park, and got into garbage there. They went into campgrounds where people are having picnics and raided, you know, whatever was around in 1969 or 70. 
And as a result, there were lots of so-called management acts where they took the grizzly bears out, they shot them. And uh, by some reports, you know, the, the population of grizzlies there, nobody knows how many bears were there in 1970. But I was in the back country all that time. And I, I think the population, you know, it, it, it wasn't huge. Maybe it was 150 or 200 bears, but, you know, not, not, uh, uh, and by one account, 172 grizzlies were killed, you know, in conflicts with people with garbage over five year period from 68 to 70, 75, basically, you know, or 73 or 74. So the grizzly population started to decline. And that's when I decided to take up the plight of grizzlies. And um, so I had a friend that gave me a 16 millimeter movie camera and I decided I was gonna collect, uh, you know, I was gonna film a collective portrait of the last grizzlies in the lower 48, because I really thought they were going out. And uh, so, you know, I started that effort and I used the footage and I'd, I'd go back in the back country um, you know, by myself mostly, but uh, I'd go back for 10 days or so and pick up a grizzly track and follow the track or find a carcass of a winter-killed elk or bison in Yellowstone National Park and wait on that carcass for the bears to come, you know, feed on it and um, collect what wild footage of wild grizzlies as I could. And I used that footage to bargain my way on national news programs, you know, the Today Show or Good Morning America or Nightly News, or, you know, one a lot of those things. And advocate for the plight of grizzlies. You know, these are noble, beautiful animals. It's the one animal on the American continent that reminds the most arrogant species on Earth of their true place in the world and on the food pyramid. And that is Homo sapien. You know, it's, it's the one place where you just can't put on your backpack and diddy bop down the trail there's something in there you know that you got to pay attention to because if if uh, if it wanted to it could kill and eat you at any time you know that doesn't happen much but the fact that it's lurking somewhere there makes you a better human being i think yeah i love that and and you talk a lot about that and you also talk about you know the the relationship people have or man has with grizzly bears and I really like a chapter that you talk about your um, kind of thoughts on trophy hunting or thoughts on hunting in general. You are a hunter, right? You're a gun lover, uh, but you've got a pretty conflicted relationship with like NRA and SCI. Um, I love this passage that you have uh, in one of your chapters. You're talking about kind of how trophy hunting started or, or the, 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 the thoughts behind it. And you're like, throw in some colonial dominance over the beast, a little Hemingway, and you find a tremendous amount of masculine bullshit in consideration Truly. of what cons yeah. constitutes an yeah. authentic ex experience in outdoor blood sports. I love that. I love the way that you have that phrase. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you can talk about your relationship and your thoughts on uh, trophy well, hunting, the NRA, and all that. I live in Montana. The governor of Montana recently, in the last couple of months, uh, a uh, a wolf-killing, poaching, hunting guide treed a mountain lion that came out of Yellowstone Park with a ready collar, put it in a tree. He held the mountain lion in the tree while the governor, while he called the governor, the governor, governor flew up from, you know, Helena, Montana, to where I live. And they kept the mountain lion in the tree, and he came up and shot it out of the tree. Now, wow. just uh, just last uh, this last fall, the same governor with the same guide in the same place, the guide trapped a Yellowstone wolf with a radio collar, just north of the park, just a couple miles north of the park, and kept it in the trap until the governor helicoptered in and. Uh, what? Shot the wolf while it was in a trap. So that is a standard of present-day trophy hunting in in Montana, uh, in the state of Montana where I live. And uh, you know, it, it's that is a shame. Yeah. That is not a hunt. That's a shooter. That's a killing, and it's a hate crime. And um, you know, the laws of the uh, I'm I'm just talking about my own state, but the same is true of Idaho and Wyoming. These northern Rocky states 
have um, legislatures that, uh, that that hate and fear wild predators. Mm -hmm. You know, these are Republican um, Trumpers that, uh, um, you know, they... You know they they don't know anything really about wild animals. You know they think they do because they can kill them, but in fact they don't. They don't spend any time with them. They don't learn their habits. They don't they don't practice a fair chase ethic of hunting, and uh, um, you know they they hate what they don't know, and they increasingly don't know anything about wolves, bears, mountain lions, and they hate they you know they fear what they hate. And it, it's all comes together. So it's almost a hate crime to go out and kill as many wolves as you can. I think in Montana, you can kill 10 wolves a year or something like that. I don't oh. know if it's five or 10. But it's uh, that is not, you know, I, I wouldn't shoot a predator for a cool million, many, you know. Right. Anytime. You know, they're, they are independent, valuable animals that live their own lives. And, you know, if you don't want to eat an animal... And uh, it doesn't threaten you in any way. I, I I will never see the connection, this need to kill, just to notch your belt a bit. And a lot of that philosophy comes out of, uh, oh, hell, the Spanish, Spanish philosopher, uh, Garcia Ortega, who wrote uh, Meditation on Honey, where he said, you know, yeah. the noblest thing uh, a hunter can do is uh, find an authenticity in the hunt and the hunt the authenticity comes from the kill not the hunt and I, I that's pure european colonial garbage and you know you, you mate that with a little dominion over the animals in our in our crazy goddamn gun culture you know i i, I have lots of nice guns but you know i, I don't want a culture full of assault rifles i handled too many of those in wars and, and uh know it's it's a sickness it's really bad and you know you can almost smell it as you travel through the land wow sign of our times yeah yeah i mean another passage you said was the fact that we are still debating trophy hunting shows us how far we need to go to stop the plunder of the earth how true i mean it's so true it's just a great chapter that you argue you dispel rumors that hey this goes back to conservation or blah 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 or this um and yeah, it's really, I think you're right when it comes to fear. I think that people are scared of something that they don't understand. And, and you know, the, the the popular wisdom underlies uh, Safari International and the National Rifle. Um, um, what, what's it? NFL. Or no, no. Uh, NRA, National Rifle. NRA. <laughs> yeah. Ed Abbey gave me a sticker a long time ago, 40, 50 years ago. And I never got around to put it on my truck, but you know, we were mm -hmm. both hunters and we had guns and things. And uh, but they have diverted into a social agenda that I is just it's poisonous. And uh, you know, I separate myself from them uh, really strongly. Um, the uh, the popular wisdom in Montana is that you know you need to hunt grizzlies to make them shy. Of people because they're innately shy people well none of that is true that's all bullshit and uh you know grizzlies don't have an innate fear necessarily of grizzly of people they have a healthy healthy respect which i you know i don't think i've ever exploited the bear but you know i've taken advantage i've been charged by grizzlies dozens of times and you know some of those bears just stopped a few feet away almost always your mothers with young and if you are not a threat to that mother's young, she will not touch you. And an example of that is uh, three or four years ago, I had my daughter um, up in Yellowstone Park, and she was going to be married that summer. I was going to walk her down the island. So we had one last hike in Yellowstone Park, and we climbed to the top of this, you know, big butte, you know, a kind of flat-topped mountain. And... Uh, we went up there and it's a beautiful place where I've seen grizzlies and there's all kinds of animals up there. You know, there's antelope, bighorn sheep, grizzly bears. And, you know, it, it's just a great place and bison are all around you down there grazing. So we're sitting and the wind is blowing like hell. And me and my daughter um, are huddled beneath a, a huge rock, a glacial erratic. And, uh, and just 
being out of the wind. And I, I'm looking at my daughter holding her under one arm, and I look out, she's caught the eye of a mother grizzly coming over the rise, not very far away. I mean, I don't know how far, 80, 90 feet or something, but, you know, way too close. <laughs> and the mother grizzly has a yearling cub, and she rears. And, you know, grizzlies, when they're deciding what they need to do to protect their young, you know, they rear and they slobber and they look around, you know, upright. You know, that is not a threat to human beings. They're simply deciding, you know, they're trying to praise the nature of the threat. Well, in our case, I just said to my daughter, Laura, don't move. And we didn't. And uh, after, oh, you know, very few minutes, the grizzly bear settled down and walked over that rise with her cub and walked right past us. I mean, 20 feet away. And she's... And she went to the edge of the cliff and sat down with her yearling cub and, and nursed her cub for about seven or eight minutes. Now, this is, in the, this is in early June, and the context is that it is the mating season for grizzlies. And there were, you know, there were, I could hear a grizzly roar somewhere out in the, out in the vast meadows. And the mating season for grizzlies is a brief time in the early summer. And, you know, males go all over the place and, and that aggression can be transferred to other animals, including young grizzlies. You know, and the popular theory is that mother grizzlies uh, fear for their cubs. They fear the male grizzly more than they do a human being. So a grizzly bear, for hmm. instance, I, I, I spent a lot of time in British Columbia and Alaska, too, and up there on Salmon's Dreams, a grizzly mother once left her three cubs sitting right next to me in the bank of the Salmon River. I didn't, I didn't do anything. I just sat there. Wow, yeah. And, and, and she went out and got a salmon and came back and collected her cubs and went on. And that's kind of what that's, this bear did. So, you know, that kind of behavior has been recorded in Alaska and Salmon where there's tons of food, but not in Yellowstone. You know, that was, that was good. It, it shows you, you know, the possibilities of you know, having some kind of a reckoning with wild animals. You know, bears are sentient beings, and, uh, you know, you, you should allow for that possibility. And the only way to allow for it is just not be a threat to the bear. You know, you don't have to shoot them all to make them shy. They're, they're not shy. They're, they're what they are. It's the wild, beautiful, uncontrollable being. Wow. Yeah, that's incredible that you are a momentary... Uh, grizzly bear babysitter for a while. <laughs> yeah, as I went to as the mother went to go get salmon. Um, so you've kind of talked about this a little bit, but can you can you talk a little bit more about the issue with states managing their own bear populations and the U.S. Fish and mm -hmm. Wildlife taking them off the endangered species list? Well, I've been that's what I've been doing the last. Uh, 20 years basically is you know uh, once in uh oh you know around 2009 they delisted the federal wildlife service in charge of the grizzly bear because it's still on the endangered species list as an endangered uh, threatened species and so the states don't have any management rights over the bear at all and by the you know the information the data that i just cited I don't think they're capable of managing a grizzly population. Yeah. They've just, all they want to do is kill a bear. They resolve every conflict with cattle, you know, with, you know, by shooting, killing, or euthanizing the bear. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Federal Wildlife Service isn't much better either. And, uh, you know, I, 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 through Save the Yellowstone Grizzly, which is an organi organization I had to found in 2016, when and we, we took the Federal Wildlife Service to court and beat them in, the, in 2009 or 10. And we had to do it again in 2019, you know, when they delisted the Yellowstone Grizzly a second time. And, and both times the federal judges agreed with us. It just wasn't, it wasn't evidence of a, a, a viable population of grizzlies in Yellowstone without connectivity to populations up in, say, Glacier. Right. And, you know, because I-90 is just a strict barrier. So, um, uh, you know, one, um, so I, you know, one of the projects of Save the Yellowstone Grizzly is to, we found an existing freeway underpass 
that bears, moose, black bears, um, they all use. And uh, we're we're trying to get that in front of the uh, you know the, the the Department of Transportations. And I also hired a law firm to you know look into to the Federal Wildlife Service okaying the killing of grizzlies involved in conflicts in Yellowstone. I believe they're being they're just killing them too easily hmm. and too cavalier. And uh, you know the with climate change, which is the beast of our time, it lingers over everything. Humans, grizzly bears, everything. In the case of grizzly bears, the Yellowstone ecosystem that that the carrying capacity, the habitat is declining because of drought and warming temperatures. You know, the most important food to the Yellowstone grizzly is the nut of a white bark pine tree. And um, climate change caused an epidemic of pine beetle to break out by warming the winter temperatures so the beetles could overwinter, you know, in the, in the, the bark layer of the... Uh, you know, of, of the uh, white bark pine zone, which is the high altitude pine. It's right up at 9,000 feet. Hmm. And uh, basically, in the course of about three years, or maybe five years, you know, 2002 to 2007, about 95% of the mature cone bearing white bark pine trees died of this beetle infestation. And that's not the only thing. Wildfire, wildfires, unstoppable wildfires like California. Man, I'm going back to Montana, and it's just dry as a bone. And we're going to see those this summer. And in Yellowstone, they found that some of those fires don't come back as timber anymore. They come back as grassland. And, you know, the average carrying capacity is diminished because of that. They're just less food. And so naturally, grizzly bears in Yellowstone, which is an island, an isolated Physically and genetically, an isolated population of, of grizzly bears, um, you know, they need to expand their habitat to find new foods and new areas and pioneer new habitats. And those bears that leave Yellowstone and make moves towards the other ecosystems, those are bears we need. Those are We call those explorer bears. And they're the ones that will make contact with a population up in Grizzly and solve the genetic isolation of that population. So we want to give those bears a chance, and that's all. And the uh, Federal Wildlife Service has been real stingy lately. Mm. Uh, and, and we're just going to put some scrutiny on them, and hopefully, you know, they can, uh, they've got, you know, very old guidelines from 1986 they used to killer bears and i think those have to be revisited and i'm lobbying for that yeah it, well that's incredible i know that's really important work and i know it's really really important and difficult to connect these fragmented habitats um the yukon to yellowstone i know that's an initiative to to make a you know uh, that yeah but you know places. if you can't connect yellowstone to glacier going to yukon is you know yeah Going to Yukon is already done, but you, the, the critical link is the isolation of Yellowstone ecosystem for all of us. So we, we you know, we should really concentrate. Uh, I think, especially on I ninety, is an absolute barrier to bear migration because it is now. Do you do you see any progress with that in the public discourse? And also, do you see any? Have you seen? Like, what's the trend of bear populations in general? Of, of grizzly bear populations, we'll say actually. Well, there's so many removals right now that I think it's stagnant. Okay. And, uh, um, you know, the number of cubs born into the population, number of bear removals, you know, they're, they're close. And uh, as long as you've got removals of grizzly bears, and, you know, by their own reckoning, the governments, various government agencies report about, oh, close to 70 grizzlies in Yellowstone and other about 70 in glacier bears are removed every year you know from conflicts with livestock or management controls or automobiles or whatever hunter yeah. poaching you know that kind of stuff so i think the population is it's it you know i won't say that it's dire because uh you know 
we've we've got uh, several hundred grizzlies in both Glacier and Yellowstone. Not as many, I think, as the uh, as the states want to claim because they want to hunt grizzly bears. But uh, you know, it's a it's a healthy population that we could if we can cut down on mortality, we can maintain. You protect their habitat and you don't kill them, and that's a secret to keeping grizzly bears around. Hmm. Are you are you hopeful? Are you hopeful that we'll be able to keep them around? I'm going to do this the rest of my life, you know. So it's kind of rolling the stone up a mountain, but that's and that's something, uh, and it, it keeps me fighting. And I will fight to the end on this, and, you know, just to change public opinion. Um, Save the Yellowstone Grizzly is also producing movies. You know, the last uh, finished film was an award-winning film called uh, The Beast of Our Time. It's narrated by my friend and landlord, Jeff Bridges. And, uh, you know, it, it's a fine film. And it talks about those explorer bears trying to get from one ecosystem out of Yellowstone to the next, you know. And, uh, you know, the, the, we're taking that around the country. We've been stymied with the pandemic the last couple of years. We're taking that around in the region first and then, and then around the country. I'm currently on a, uh, you know, I'm on a... Uh, a book tour for Patagonia promoting Was It Worth It, my last book that's got all this stuff in it. And uh, I'm going to I'm gonna go from here out to California doing live events. And, you know, we're going to talk about all that stuff. You know, I talk about grizzly bears. I talk about the making of the monkey wrench game movie. And, of course, the book. You know, the book has got a lot of, a lot of cranky old tales. And <laughs> the reason I, I chose the stories I wrote up is because I hadn't pu published those stories widely before, and some of them had an important, uh, you know, historic or or biological item in it. For instance, um, I found there was a there was a, a, the most famous poacher in Yellowstone's history was named uh, Howell. He was a buffalo poacher in the 1890s, and uh, because of they 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 accidentally busted him in the back country of Yellowstone and and uh, from the publicity of his bust the Lacey Act was passed that was gave the first protection to national parks and also the last bison there were only 23 wild animals they couldn't catch and all of them were in Pelican Valley and Yellowstone National Park in 1902 so that's 60 million down to 23 animals. Wow. And I found his hunting camp looking for grizzlies in Yellowstone. So I put that story in there. And another story was I went down to the Sierra Madres in, eight, in 1985 to find the last sign of the last Mexican grizzly. And in doing it, I had a jaguar backtrack me. I'd never seen it. Yeah, that was great. That was wild. I, I, I never seen a jaguar or heard one or anything before. That was a... That's, a stunning story. So, and I, I went over to the Russian Far East with my my old buddies, uh, Doug Tompkins, who died in a kayak accident in South America, but also Rick Ridgway, Yvonne Chenard, Tom Brokaw, and oh. Jeb Ellison. These are guys that I, I take, you know, polar bear trips with, or this was a Siberian tiger trip, uh, trip, and we crossed the track of a young male lion that turns out to be one of the most famous, well, they say man-eater, but in truth, they're equal opportunity, you know, carnivores. <laughs> that was wild. I did have a question about that. Like what, how, you don't hear much, at least I don't hear much about conservation in Russia, but you made this kind of comparison that is very rich in timber, oil, gold, coal, diamonds, uh, but its conservation efforts are very similar to kind of the turn of the century in America or in Alaska. Well, you know, they have their own system, which I do not decry because it saved tremendous amount of habitat. Wow. As they just kind of like Mexico, they just draw a green, you know, line around a map and say, this is a wildlife reserve or whatever they call it, you know, the hunting preserve or and nobody goes in there. They don't have any wardens in there. They don't have any, and no people are allowed in. So by default, that land is left pretty damn pristine. Mm -hmm. And in, in, in the Russian Far East, at least, where I had some experience, that's where all the animals were. And, you know, um, you know the, the bureaucracy doesn't like you to go by yourself or alone or anything like yeah. that. 
but what the hell you know it, it it's a different system and uh i you know when i was over there and i knew there was this wildlife preserve just a few kilometers away i really kind of wanted to sneak into it just to indulge myself in a you know a humanless landscape which our national parks generally are not so i love that chapter and i love the way you talk about it and i love the whole crew you were with like you mentioned dub tompkins and Yvonne mm-hmm. and uh, Rick Woodsway, oh, yeah, great. Tom Brokaw. So that's uh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's part of the do boys. Brokaw sure. lent me his kayak, or I wouldn't have gone, you know. Yeah, he did, bought two of these fold-up kayaks, and that's what we carried with us. <laughs> you had to put up your uh, your Ford tr- pickup for collateral. Another sentence I've never heard anyone else say. Oh, <laughs> <That's> really cool. <laughs> well, I didn't want to, you know. I knew the I knew the odds were were, were slim, but possible. <laughs> right. So Tom needed some, you know. <laughs> well, <And> payback. <laughs> well, so you mentioned uh, you did mention Edward Abbey, um, who's oh, yeah. an incredible figure. Uh, you know, a real through line in the story. So you were the basis for George Washington Hey Duke of the Monkey Wrench Gang. Do you have any Edward Abbey stories that you'd like to share, whether they were in the book or anything else? Well, um, I went out. Uh, Ed Abbey's buried somewhere within a hundred miles of where I am right now. And a few days ago, I went out there to pay my respects, which I do every few years, you know, and just check on the grave. He's buried in a beautiful wilderness, illegal grave, you know, according to his last request. And, you know, I, I, uh, I found a place, helped dig the hole out there. So mm-hmm. we knew where they were. I was just going to read a little passage about, uh, Let's see what kind of sheep. That's it. Yeah, please. Oh, excuse me. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, anyway, so Ed Abbey died in 1989 on March 14th, and we managed to bury him two days later on March 16th. So I'm just going to read the last of a chapter in my book called Counting Sheep. On the eve of March 16th, I journeyed to the edge of this desert place. Okay, so, you know, the last time Ed Abbey smiled was when I told him where I was going to be buried. So on the, me, on the eve of March 16th, I journeyed to the edge of this desert place. March 16th is my Day of the Dead, the anniversary of the My Lai Massacre in Vietnam, it was also my last day in the field in Vietnam. They chopped me east out of Bateau that morning. 30 kilometers downstream towards the coast, we got shot at. It was no big deal, as we got shot at in helicopters all the time. But I looked down and I recognized the area in the little hamlet of My Lai. I had been there earlier on the ground. At that time, I didn't know that American soldiers were systematically murdering 500 unarmed Vietnamese civilians. It was almost a year before I saw the photos in Life magazine. They changed my life. From that moment on, I quite irrationally owned that problem. March 16th was also the date in 1989 that three friends and I buried Ed Abbey here in accordance with his last wishes. Though he died on March 14th, it took a couple days to sneak into the wilderness and find a suitable gravesite. This March 16th, I had traveled out here alone to Abby's grave, bearing little gifts, including a bottle of mescal and a bowl of pasole verde that I had made myself. I sat quietly on the black volcanic rocks, listening to the desert silence, pouring mescal over the grave and down my throat until the moon came up an hour or so before midnight. Suddenly, I heard a commotion to the south, the roar of basaltic scree thundering down the slope opposite me. A large, solitary animal was headed my way. I got the hell out of there. Two days later, I told my story of the desert. Two days later, I told my story of the desert bighorn ram I heard but never saw to my poet friend, Jim Harrison. Well, Doug, Jim said. Maybe it was old Ed. It definitely was. It definitely was. Yeah, that was. Uh, it was cool to know that you were the. Um, you know, there are some of Edward Abbey's uh, illustrations throughout the book, but it was really cool to know that you were the inspiration behind George Washington and Hey Duke. Yeah. Um, 
Well, one thing I really like about you and the way you talk in the book is that you are you are very moralistic. And you mentioned that despite initial interest and aptitude, you didn't go into geology since you didn't want to be involved with the oil and gas companies. I love that. I love the fact that you have these guiding principles. Can you talk about like what what are your guiding principles or what what motivates you or what kind of things do you consider before you take jobs or before you kind of establish your own philosophies? Well, the reason Ed Abbey and I were friends is because we shared this belief in the value of wilderness and the need to defend it. And that's just been a, you know, that's been a, a guiding principle all my life. And, uh, um, you know, I know what I won't do. And I can say no to a lot of things. And it, it does follow your path in, uh, you know, uh, cantankerous ways. And I have become, you know, an eternal foe of, uh, of harvesting land and seeing the wilderness as a giant free supermarket. And uh, those are the values because I value the plants and the animals and their right to exist, you know, that live there and, and their right to exist. And I will fight for, um, you know, that, that possibility all my life till the end of time. Can you talk about your relationship and need for solitude for walking? Yeah. Um, here, I'm just going to read a paragraph from my book. Because I took, you know, for instance, right here where I am right now, there is a huge desert wilderness west of me. And, you know, it goes about 160, 70 miles hmm. from, you know, from road to road. And I, I've walked across it seven times by myself. It takes 10 days. And, uh, well, I make it take 10 days, you know, because I spend a day fasting and out there and sort of mourning my dead and such like that. But, you know, I never see a human being. I carry, I go alone all the time, and I carry my own water. And, and traveling solo like that is, you know, nobody recommends it, but it is, uh, let me just read this paragraph. And those solitary walks were the greatest currency Ed Abbey and I ever shared. Ed finished one and attempted another even after he'd begun to die. So with three friends, I buried him out there. Okay. Solitude is the deepest well I have encountered in this life, and I found most of it either down here in the desert or up in grizzly country. Introspection arrives easily, blowing off the two-needled pines or on the desert breeze. It's also a human luxury, best indulged in before your children are born. My long west-to-east walks were often taken during the holidays, and I had to give them up cold turkey once my kids were old enough to know what Christmas was. <laughs> very true very good how are you transporting your water for 10 days Can canteens and you, wow. you have to find water out there okay yeah and it, it, it exists uh you know in the, like the driest of times and we're in a tremendous 20-year drought in the in the west right now all over the west right but in the driest of times even the the biggest water holes they're called tinajas you know they're they're Torrential rains drill these holes during the summer floods, and uh, you know they stay full of water for six months or so sometimes. And uh, you got to know where the water is out there, or you die. Period. And uh, so you know, and sometimes it's forty miles between water holes. So I have to carry enough for forty miles of walking. It's about three days, or about three and a half gallons, you know, of water. And so that's what I track yeah. and I make the water last between one water hole and the next, you know, and it, it just splays out. So the last night you're sleeping under the stars, of course, out there all the time. And, uh, you know, you've only got maybe a cup of water left and you savor it like the mm. finest <laughs> bourbon whiskey you've ever tasted or the finest Bordeaux, you know. <laughs> yeah, that three. Water Three and a half gallons, that's like 30 pounds. That's, that's a significant amount of yeah, water. Yeah, it's about 15 pounds a gallon. Yeah, oh, I wow. think, okay, yeah. as I remember. Or maybe seven and a half. Yeah. Anyway. Wow. Yeah. It's so, a lot of water. It's, yeah. it's, it's over 20 pounds, yeah. Well, and on the camping question, one of the things you mentioned is it's the most important thing with camping is where you put your tent. I want to know where you put, like, what do you look for for the tent location, uh, placement locations? 
Yeah. Well, that uh, that comment was made up in Grizzly country. Gotcha. Because it is really important where you because you don't want a grizzly walking over your face in the night, <laughs> so you can't camp next to a grizzly trail, or where they feed around their food, and are close to where they bed. So it is really important. What I do up in you know I don't I don't take a perfect campsite in a in a meadow next to a lake. Lake I bushwhack into the timber, you know, mm. and sometimes. Uh, you know, I just you, you I bushwhack into the timber and make sure I see no tracks or sign of grizzlies, no scat, no diggies, not, none of that kind of stuff and put a tent down in the desert is a little different because, uh, you know, <clears throat> you don't have to worry about grizzly bears out there. But uh, there's a little, you know, in the old days, there's a little bit of human traffic. There's a lot now because of that goddamn poisonous wall. The mm. wall is an absolute barrier along the border to all wildlife, yeah. mountain lions, jaguars, pronghorn, antelope, anything that doesn't fly or, or crawl, basically. And uh, But, you know, where I throw my my tent out there, I actually, I don't carry a tent in the desert at all. I just sleep out all the time. But, you know, I like desert washes. Now, you, you know, you you you... you during the summer, during the period of floods and storms, you got to watch uh, flash floods. But you don't have to worry about that in the wintertime. It just doesn't happen. So I like washes where the where the ironwood trees and you know other other trees uh, tend to tend to grow where you got shade and cover, and you can build a little fire out of you know out of sight of anything. And um, you know, in the old days, I built ironwood fires. Uh, wow. That would be ecologically um unsound questionable in, in yeah. today's paragon but but i did it hundreds of times and then it, it was beautiful <laughs> oh wow yeah it's i'm telling you it is an incredible book i love uh i love your stories i love the through line of conservation Again, I love your, your morals. I love how positive you are about it. Um, I think for a lot of conservationists, we, we kind of have to be. It's the only option we have. So yeah, I would definitely recommend people to pick up Was It Worth It by Doug Peacock. Again, I want to be respectful of your time. I know you've got some walking with your pups, speaking of walking. Uh, so uh, And I know you want to get that in before the sun sets. Well, yeah. Thank you, Brian. Really, this has been a a pleasure, man. Yeah. Well, thank you very <laughs> much. I can't tell you how much joy this book has given me and everyone I've recommended it to. Uh, we'll continue to recommend it. So thank you so much for writing it, for allowing me to read it, and for allowing me to talk with you. Uh, it's been a real pleasure of mine. You bet. Thanks for joining. If you liked that episode, feel free to rate, view, and subscribe. That actually really helps. If you haven't seen it yet, take a look at the accompanying blog. Don't forget your boots.com where you can read more and see photos for all the interviews. Until next time, take care.